You're listening to Software Unscripted. I'm your host, Richard Feldman. Today I'm talking to Jose Valim, creator of the Elixir programming language, about the differences between gradual typing and static typing. We start by discussing the type checking system for Elixir that's reached the prototype stage, and then get into some of the trade-offs that are not so often discussed about static typing and gradual typing, including the question of whether gradual typing is the best of both worlds. And now, gradual versus static typing. Okay, Jose, thanks for uh, coming back. Yeah, thanks for having me again. Yeah, so uh, we talked last time about how uh, Elixir is in the process of getting set theoretic types, so static type checking, and now it seems like you've gotten to the prototype stage. Yes, uh, exactly. So I think I should give uh, a little bit more context to everybody listening before I move forward. So Elixir is a programming language that runs on the Erlang Virtual Machine, and it's a dynamic programming language. And we started some time ago to research having static typing for Elixir. This is a long process with many questions versus like which kind of type system we are going to use, right? And I think that's something that we should talk about. But the one, the one that we chose to explore is called set theoretic types. And in order to do that, we've partnered with Giuseppe Castagna, which is a researcher for the CNRS, which is like the largest research institution in Europe. And he has been working with set theoretic types for a long period of time. And so we got a PhD student. This project's being sponsored by some of the companies that Fresha and Superbase and Dashbit who use Elixir in production. And, and yeah, we started this project and uh, the PhD student, uh, Guillaume Duboc, he has released a prototype. And it's very funny because, uh, so he, he gave a presentation at Elixir conference in uh, in Europe, like last month, like mm-hmm. talking about our work and the prototype we built more to validate. So the prototype, it's like, it's really just a prototype. So we didn't make changes to the Elixir syntax. So we got like whatever syntax we had and tried to, to make it work. And there is a programming language called CDUS, which implements set theoretic types. So like we get the Elixir types we convert them to seduce types, and then we we shell out like we call a separate program. So it's really a prototype, like just to to play with ideas. And in the talk, we're like, okay, we have this prototype, but it's really a prototype, you know, like it's only for the conference. And yeah. then what happened last night is that it was on the front page of Hacker News. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I had to go there. I had to go there and say a message. Hey, you know, like this is not meant to be here. This is not what it's going to, to, to look like. But if you want to learn more, there's this talk. We now have a paper, which uh, we hopefully, is, we have like a preprint, preprint kind of thing, and it's going to be hopefully published. And yeah, so I think, I think this is a, a big milestone for us because I'm, I'm thinking about this as a research and development kind of project. And it feels we are like, getting out of the research stage and going to the development stage, which doesn't mean it's going to, we are going to deliver something, right? But getting out of the research stage definitely feels good. Nice. Yeah, congrats on the milestone. That's that's still really cool. Um, so how are you feeling about it? Like as far as like trying things out in the prototype, I mean, uh, gradually typed languages, uh, as, as I talked about in a recent talk uh, or a talk that recently came out it seems like the most common use case for them in practice at least the ones that end up 
sort of going mainstream, like this is like TypeScript or uh, Sorbet for Ruby or Hack with PHP uh, that came out of Facebook. The one thing they all have in common is that either they are not mainstream or if they are mainstream, it's because they were adding static typing to a language that was already dynamically typed. And one of the things that seems to come up in that scenario is it's kind of a, a question mark as to how nice the types feel after the fact. So like, yes, you got you got the type checking, but what does that do to the experience of using the language? So I'm kind of curious, I don't know, what was your experience so far with the prototype? Yeah, so one of the things is that, and I think that's the answer for why set theoretic types, because that's exactly like, you have already an existing language and the language has, it, it has a certain expressive power, especially if you don't start a programming language with a type system, it's kind of like, the expressive power, let's say it's unbound, unconstrained, or something like that, right? Like you can yeah. do, you know, if you think you can do it, there's a chance that you can do it, make it happen, and there is nothing like constraining your program. So the the challenge for me uh, of all this work is exactly how you're going to find a type system that can model as many of the Elixir semantics as possible. Yeah. And uh, and there are good news in here, like Elixir is a dynamic language, but compared to Python or Ruby or JavaScript, it's nowhere as dynamic. The amount of like dynamism in your code is way more restricted. But you want to model as much as you can of the language, because if you can't do that, two things, potentially more, but two main things are going to happen. So one is, well, you can't model an idiom. So you're either going to get like false positive warnings, is something like the type system going to say, hey, I can't, I can't allow that because the type system cannot express or understand everything the language can do, and your users are going to be frustrated, or you can, uh, or you can say, well, if we can't do that, you're just going to say it's dynamic, and saying that something is dynamic because you have a gradual type system can imply many things. It can mean like, oh. I have to add runtime checks, and some languages they chose to do that. Other languages they said, well, if it's dynamic, we're just going to say, we're not going to check it, you know? So maybe the type system says, oh, I think this is a Boolean, but it's something that is dynamic and it's not a Boolean at the end. So you have all those uh, design decisions and those trade offs. So I am going to this like really confident because I think we're able to model really a lot of the Elixir idioms uh, using set theoretic types because they are a, a very expressive type system. And I mean, they are being expressive. They are things that you lose out of this, such as inference. And we can also talk about this, but it's a very expressive type system. So we are able to express a lot, but not only that, because, you know, we, we are doing this work with somebody who has been researching set theoretic types for like 20 years, right? right? It's like, well, we can't model this. They're like, all right, we are going to develop the theory and trying to see, we're going to do the formalization and we are going to build what is necessary so we can now uh, represent this stuff within the type system. So I'm really, I'm really confident. The only, there's only one question mark now, um, which is about occurrence typing and how much of, so occurrence typing, I'm going to simplify here. I'm going to say it's like how well we can understand conditional codes. Like if you have a very complex condition that says, hey, you know, when there is this constraint in this data structure, I know that this type is going to be X or Y uh, and being able to understand that. And that's something that we still have to explore. 
But that's the the question mark that we have right now. But I'm not very worried about it because we can do some occurrence typing. And in Elixir, I wouldn't feel like if for some reason we say, hey, we cannot understand that, right? Uh, please be more specific. We have a beautiful way of being specific, which is using pattern match, pattern matching and guards, which would be the idiomatic way. So yeah, so that's, so I'm going pretty confident. I think we got a lot of the language well mapped to set theoretic types. There is a small question mark in there. But you know, when I got into this process, I was like, well, I'm hoping we can map. I mean, I would give myself like a random number. Like I want to map like 90% of the language. If we get to that, I'll be like very, very happy because I think that's a, a very high number, especially when my earlier attempts uh, to do this, I did not get to like 70%. So I was like, and I feel, I feel we are going to get there. And I feel like if we have to say we're not going to support this, we are going to say we don't support something that is almost like not really idiomatic. You see what I mean? It's like, well, we don't yeah. support this, but arguably you should be writing it in this better way. So yeah, on this whole research thing, I think that's how I'm coming out of it. So when you say like 90%, like one of the things that comes to mind is, so TypeScript um, has an any type. And I think uh, in the paper, you called it dynamic. Do I remember that right? Yeah. 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 So it's like, hey, you know, type checker, just ignore this. You know, we're going to do this at runtime. Um, so it sounds like when you say 90%, you mean that like, you know, 10% of the language is going to be just typed as dynamic. And that's just kind of the way it is. Is that right? Yes. And actually, you re you remind me of something else. Um, yes, that's correct. And the reason why we, we chose dynamic is because I wanted to make it like longer to type, not make it that easy. It's very ah. easy to write any. So it's like, uh -huh. well, you want dynamic, like pay for it, like type a little bit more. <laughs> um, but yes, uh, that's exactly it. It's like, so the case is where going back, where you either is going to have to say this is dynamic, or you or will emit a false positive, something that, you know, for Elixir, it would have the behavior that you want, but the type system cannot understand that. It's going to be, you know, like, let's say, like 5% of the language. But that's not like 5% of your code base. I, I don't, that's not what it translates, right? It, uh -huh. I'm hoping it's going to be like niche cases and niche idioms. It's not like, you know, if you have, you know, a <laughs> hundred thousand line of code, you have to revisit 5,000 of them. But if you think about the language features and the language surface and so on, and uh, complex constructions, that's what I'm thinking about. So like all the data structures we were able to, to model well. And there is one thing that we did not do and on purpose, and I, I guess that's a whole separate discussion, is that we are not doing message passing between processes. So that's always going to be with like, like you're not typing them or, or adding yes, exactly. Things. Yeah, so they will come. I mean, we'll do some basic typing, but it's going to be that dynamics going to show up a lot of the times. Uh -huh. Yeah, so I'm I'm really like the Erlang folks. They like to say sequential Erlang. So we're really focused on the sequential elixir and the functional elixir, and not worried about uh, the message passing aspect. But the other thing, there are a bunch of other things apparently. But the other thing is that when you receive a message in Elixir, you receive those messages using patterns and guards. And one of the work that we did is using is being able that we can model all the pattern matching 
and all of the guard constructs. We've set theoretic types and use that as type information that flows throughout the program. So it means like if you say, hey, imagine that you're implementing a counter with a process, and then you receive a message, which is a tuple, like I want to bump. And then you say that the second argument in the tuple is the value that you want to bump, and you have a guard, which is an integer. Then that information is going to flow through through the system. So yeah. I see. So so it's like the messages themselves are not statically typed, but the way that you use them kind of is like uh, on the receiving side, I guess. It's like, since I received this message, yes. based on how I'm using it, we infer that it must have these characteristics. And if they're inconsistent, then you can yes. uh, do a type mismatch. What we are not going to do is that if you send a message to a process and that process cannot handle that message, we're not going to be able to tell you. That's it. But within that, within the bounds of a process, so you're not typing the message communication, which goes, which is really interesting because you know, going back to what I said, like we are not as dynamic as Ruby, Python, or JavaScript. The dynamism in Elixir most of the time is exactly in the message passing, uh, but because it's also a construct for concurrency, we are not relying on it that frequently. It's a it's an abstraction that you reach for when you have to solve a certain problem. So I think this is what I'm about to say is incorrect, but uh, you can correct me. <laughs> but um, when you say that, I'm, I'm guessing it's probably actually something to do with the APIs. But um, when I think about what would be the pros and cons of having these things, like let's say you could statically type uh, the messages. A downside that comes to mind is that one of the things that uh, is nice about having a message that is essentially opaque data coming from the outside world is that uh, you can potentially have some degree of backwards compatibility and servers that like upgrade on the fly and like are capable at runtime of changing to be able to understand new messages that they weren't before. Um, and there's definitely trade-offs around that, and uh, like some type systems can, and other type systems cannot express things like, for example, I can handle anything that has these, any payload that has these characteristics. Some type systems you can say, for example, like in uh, in Elm and Rock, you can say, I want to accept a record that has at least these fields in it, and if you, if there's more fields, that's fine, I don't care. But like in Rust, you can't do that. You can only say like it has to have exactly these. So that would be a case where even if you could apply a static type system to the message passing, you might not want to because you might prefer to say, well, you know what, I want to be able to add more to this in the future in a backwards compatible way, and the static types are going to break that. So I'm curious if that was the scenario where it's like, yeah, we could apply types here. It's just that it would remove important functionality, such as backwards compatibility of like real-time updates. Or was it more just like, the way these APIs are designed, we just can't use the current type system that we've got to, to type them at all, even if we wanted to. It's a couple of things. So one is that the whole like typing communication between processes, it's still like a, let's say, an unsolved problem. There's a lot of research. There are people interested. There are like uh, uh, session types and multi-session types. There is a bunch of interesting research happening in this area. But I think it's like, I don't think we've reached a solution where everybody's saying like, oh, this is the kind of as close to a universal agreement you could get that that's the way you want to move forward. So, so that's one of the things. So it would add a lot of uncertainty to the project. But the other thing is that in 
and like I'm talking with uh, Giuseppe, the, the researcher, like, and he's like, should we do this? And I'm honestly, I'm not very interested in doing that. And the reason for that is that not a lot of people are writing processes by hand. Uh, you know, yeah. um, what you do is that you have like pre-baked abstractions because a process in Erlang, it's like you can do like very few things with it. You can spawn a process, you can send a message, you can monitor it so you know if it crashes. And you can link to it. So if it crashes, it brings you down. It's kind of like like basic operations that you can do with them. So uh-huh. something like hot code swapping, it's not a fundamental process abstraction. It's built on top of those basic abstractions. So if I want to upgrade it, what I do is that I send it a message like, hey, it's time for you to upgrade and here are the instructions. So a lot of the... A lot of the like fault tolerance uh, things that we have in in Erlang and Elixir, it's built on top of those building blocks. Which means that if you want to, and all the messages are asynchronous, but sometimes you want to, a lot of times you want to send a message and get a response back. So that's implemented on top of the primitives. So that means you're not writing those processes by hand, like you're not spawning them by hand. You usually say, hey, I want to start a process running this abstraction. And this uh-huh. abstraction, it's closer to, to like, it's not really, it's, it's between like a Java interface or a Haskell type class. Um, in terms of typing, we would use like existential typing, existential types to model them. So it's, so for me, I'm much more interested in typing the abstraction than the message, the message between processes. So so, so that for me is like, is the important insight. Like I'm fine with saying, Hey, the message is dynamic because very few people would be sending messages directly. So, but that would be, that would be, again, that, that would be like, a, let's say a second step of, uh, r- research. I don't think we need, we need to have, uh, those features in the type system to consider the, the project successful. We don't need, we can have like a, a simpler way of typing interfaces and so on. So that's one. But when it comes to the hot code upgrade, I actually think that a type system may help. I may be wrong. So like this is like is a gut feeling answer. Uh, because, because a process, it has a, a, a inbox that is send messages to it, right? And that process is running on a live system. So, and we just said that when you want to upgrade the code that a process is running, you're going to send a message to it. But it, the, the, the live system that is running around it may still be running. And right. that system around it, you have to organize the order you want to upgrade your processes. But depending on the order, as you are upgrading your code, you may still be receiving old messages, you may still have messages, old messages in your inbox, yeah. which means that in order for, for you to do hot code upgrades, you need to, to, to uh, handle both old messages and new messages. So right. I think like having type, so if you, I define my interface, like those are the messages that I can receive. And then I want to do hot code upgrade. What I'll do is that I would say, those are the messages to be deprecated and those are the new messages. I push that code to production and then the next deployment, I remove the old message. It's, like, it's yeah. like a production database. Like you never remove a column. You're asking for trouble, right? Like <laughs> add a new one, do the things, remove the old ones. So I think having a type system would help kind of enforce, like you, we could use that to enforce that you're not dropping old messages. And it, it, 
you'd or, or like at least to, to tell you about it, right? Yeah. So, you, so you're aware that like if you deploy this, there's gonna be some old messages coming through. You're just gonna get errors <laughs> if if you don't handle them somehow. Um, I mean, it's the same thing with HTTP and just like like a REST API endpoint or something like that. For example, it's like yeah, yeah, if you deploy the new version, some people might still have a browser tab open that's got the old client code. And so you might just be getting messages from that old client that's got the old format. And they're just going to get errors unless you explicitly, you know, handle it in, in some other way. Yeah, so a type system could say when I when I because you have to prepare like those upgrade recipes, a type system could look at the old process, say, hey, it received those 10 messages, but your new process is missing messages like two and three like right are you sure that you want to go ahead and i think it could be useful it sounds like what you just described i could be wrong but it sounds like you can already do that because what you really care about in order to give you an answer to the question am i going to be able to handle the old thing is really if i look at my old pattern matches and i look at my new pattern matches i used to handle this thing and i'm not handling it anymore that's a problem so i don't know if you necessarily need to type the message to be able to achieve that um, it, it, it's, it's a yes and no thing because, uh, so usually what we do is that our messages, we send them as tagged tuples. So right. it would be like the, the clothes like to create like your own algebraic data type. So you have a tuple, you put an atom in the front. So for example, and usually that's what we are matching on. And maybe what you are changing is something more complex, right? Like, oh, uh, maybe before, uh, it can be like, I was sending a list of uh, strings and integers, but in this new version, the list, I only need to care about integers. So I remove the code path that handles strings. And now there is like this thing that you will not be checking in the pattern matching because it's something that is in a, in a, inside a more complex data type. So I think there are still situations where it could happen. I see. Okay, that makes sense. Interesting. Yeah, you mentioned expressiveness earlier, and this is an interesting word because I've discovered that it seems like different people mean different things when they say expressiveness. So whenever I would talk to Evan about, uh, Evan who made Elm, uh, about API design, he would always talk about things in terms of expressive power, meaning very specifically, this API design is capable of expressing these things in some way. Like, for example, it's about like restrictions, like if you're not allowed to or if there's no way to possibly use this API to express a certain thing, then it doesn't have that expressive power, which is neither a good thing nor a bad thing. It could be good that you want to you want to restrict that because that thing could cause problems if it were allowed. Another use of the term that I've heard is something along the lines of readability or or maybe like the the dual of readability. It's like I feel that I can express myself better in this language versus like this other language. Like for example, maybe if I'm comparing like Ruby and C++, I'm like, well, there's there's a way I could design this DSL in both Ruby and in C++. It's implementable in both. So from the sense of expressiveness I was talking about a second ago, it'd be like they're equally expressive, but it's like, yeah, but the one in C++ looks like hell on toast and the one on Ruby looks really <laughs> nice. So I feel I can express myself a lot better in Ruby. And I'm kind of curious, like what, how you see that? Um, when it comes to like elixir and types and things like that, yeah, I'm I'm definitely going with the with uh, Elm's interpretation, Evan's interpretation of the of the the word, because for me, so uh, it's it's one of the things that I have been been thinking about lately. So there's a lot of discussions about like dynamic and static typing, 
And I feel like that's the wrong dichotomy. Uh, I feel it's really about expressiveness versus correctness. And for example, if you look at, or what I understand should be the history of static typing, it's like, well, like if you look at the type of lambda calculus, we start with a very small core that is correct. That thing is like, it's correct. You can't do much with it or you can do things with it in a very convoluted way. Like, uh, but you know, you, you, it's not very expressive. And with time, a lot of the things, the evolution that happened in static typing is that it would look at what other languages they were doing and it would say, hey, how can we incorporate that into our static type system in a way that we can prove the correctness of that, of, of that new behavior, right? So it's looking a lot at what is happening around, say, hey, can we implement that in a way that is correct? So in a way, we, we start with this very correct core and you figure out ways of making it more expressive without losing the correctness aspect. Right. And even then, like the, this correctness aspect, like there are a bunch of variations around it. Uh, like, for example, which kind of correctness you want to guarantee. And then the perfect example nowadays is, is Rust that uses the type system to provide a different set of correctness than other languages like Haskell would do. So for me, that's like the, the dichotomy. And so I, I'm always thinking from that angle. So, and then if you're thinking from that angle, it wouldn't be correct to say like, Oh, we are making our when we when you look a feature from a dynamic language, you figure out how to type it, and you bring that to a static type system. It would be incorrect to say, "Oh, we are making this static typing more dynamic." No, you're making you know something that is correct more expressive. And now, when you go from the other side, you have something that is expressive. Uh, I think it applies a little bit more for you to say that those dynamic languages they are getting a little bit more static. But but to me, it's really going the other direction is like, how can we make this thing that it is expressive and we can make it a little bit more correct? One of the reasons that I like to think also using those two words is because static typing is not the only way to get correctness. So it opens up interpretation to like, what else can we be doing to make you know our code more correct, or we can apply other types of software verification. And I think it opens up the, the spectrum uh, a little bit to have other kinds of discussions. Yeah, that's really interesting. I definitely like talking about other forms of verifications. One of the things that I really liked about, well, this is originally, I guess, like a uh, flow type for, for JavaScript. TypeScript, I believe, has a way to do this, but they don't really lean into it as much. But basically, there was a way that you could say, take my existing JavaScript code, I'm going to add some comments, and those are going to be interpreted as type annotations, and then you run flow check, and it just looks at your .js files. It doesn't transform them at all. It just tells you to report. It's like, hey, FYI, these types are mismatched. I thought that was really cool because it kind of revealed that type checking can be essentially a, a, one of many forms of static analysis. One of the things that I really think is cool about systems like TLA plus and formal verification systems is the idea of trying to detect things like deadlocks and like other problems in your program, not through the system I'm more familiar with, which is property-based testing or, or fuzzing where you uh, just spam a bunch of random inputs at it and like run that for a while. And then eventually it's like, Oh, did it crash? Uh oh, okay. Well now we, now we have a crash that we've discovered, but rather they do it by being like, you know how there's like, you know, a, a very large combination of possible inputs that could lead to certain outputs? We're going to try all of them. 
every single one, every possible combination, and we'll tell you if there's any problems. And if we don't find any, guess what? That's because they're not there because we tried every possible <laughs> combination, which obviously past a certain point doesn't work anymore because the combination gets so large. It's like, well, I'm going to run and I will tell you in the year 4000 whether or not there were any <laughs> problems with your program. But, uh, but I think it's interesting to think about type checking as sort of one more tool in that regard. But what, one thing that I think is different between type checking and those, or, and maybe this is just because of I have a lot more experience with it, is that in my experience, once you introduce static typing to something, it definitely seems to significantly change the way that not just the implementation, but also the APIs are designed. Uh, and, and in particular, it seems to create, like because I know I'm going to be putting static types on these things, I start to feel drawn towards certain designs and away from other designs, if for no other reason that like some designs are going to have a nastier looking type on them if I try to type them or not. And to me, this feels a little bit like a fundamental point of tension in the sort of gradual typing world is that, like you said, yeah, there, there are certain things that you can express using dynamic types that you cannot put a static type on. You do have to use like the dynamic keyword or whatever. But if I am let's say I'm in TypeScript and I'm trying to enable the, like it's a popular thing to do to try to enable the, you know, no disallow any, right? That's like often a default configuration option, meaning that the goal is not to get to a hybrid world, but rather the goal is to get to a fully statically typed world for your project. That means that you're, you're very, very strongly encouraged to not design your APIs in a way that would have to use that keyword, which means, so that makes me wonder in turn, do you end up with, if you adopt static types, implicitly if not explicitly cutting off that those things that are you know in that expressivity gap where it's like these are the things that you can express in dynamic types but can't express in static types but we discourage those to the point of like nobody uses them anymore and so they might as well not be in the language yeah so yeah there are uh, there are a bunch of interesting things so just uh, going back very quickly to like the property-based testing uh compared to model to model uh checking i think it's a perfect example of like somewhere else in the expressiveness versus correctness spectrum, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, analogy, they are yeah. both software verification, but you know, uh, one is like expressive. It's you know, uh, it's easier to use, but it's not going to be as correct as the other one. Mm -hmm. So that's one note. But when you say, um, well, you know, that uh, about well, I'm going to have like now types in my program. And that may lead to certain idioms. And for me, the question that comes to my mind is, so I'm going to make an analogy. Like when we introduce like the code for matter in Elixir, um, a lot of people, they would like, oh, I run the code for matter and my code is uglier now. Yeah. And then sometimes it was, okay, the formatter is doing something bad, right? But right. sometimes it's because they would have like five expressions, one nested inside the other, right? And then the formatter is going to be <laughs> like, and then they would try to squeeze everything into a, into the same line. And then the formatter would expand that. And now you have all that nesting. Right. <laughs> and then I'm like, like, no, like the formatter is just telling you that your code is bad. It's like, <laughs> there is no format in, in the world that would make your code look good. And uh, you are trying to hide it, you know, you thought that, but it, there's a lot of complexity, there's a lot of nesting. If you refactor it, it's, it's going to be better. And, and I think it's the same question. I think if, if I'm going to have dynamic in my program, or if I'm writing uh, my programs differently because I have types now, is it because what I was doing before was bad and now the types are telling me? 
or is it because the type system is not capable of not enough of understanding that particular construction and that's more a fault of the type system or it's because it's something that has to be dynamic and there is no other way around it i think th those would be like the three questions that i would try to answer and yeah and i think it's going to to depend a lot so like going back to the formatter analogy there is some styles of code that i do not write anymore now that we have a formatter because it has guided me towards a certain place and i don't think that's necessarily bad but i think it's some of the work we have to do is like it's get this feedback like when the community starts to change because of introducing a new technique is that change good is that change bad like are we working around our tools? Are we working around our abstractions? Yeah. Or are we fixing actual flaws? Yeah, that's so okay. So formatter, I think, is actually a surprisingly good analogy. I'm I'm kind of surprised I haven't heard anyone bring that up before. But okay, so I think when I think about my use of a code formatter, obviously I'm a big fan, like like most people. <laughs> it's kind of like the what I'm used to doing now. The one case I can think of where I miss having not a formatter is alignment when i'm like i'm trying to visually align things to make them look a certain way for purposes of sometimes just it'll look nicer but sometimes i don't want to say correctness but i do want to say like error proneness where it's like if i line these things up and one of them you know is missing something that you know a type checker would not catch and a you know this would not catch and that would not catch it'll look really obviously glaringly wrong like, for example, you know, these are all supposed to be numbers that are a single digit. And if I line them up a certain way, you can see one of them, if one of them is more than that, then they'll be poking out the side. And so, you know, it's like, from a type checker's perspective, it's like, yeah, it's a number, it's fine. And, you know, maybe someone would say, well, if you had, you know, refinement types or dependent types, you could enforce that as like, you know, the number has to be in a certain range. Okay, fair enough. But the point is that that's something that is arguably a form of expressive power that not having a code formatter gives you. But at the end of the day, when I think about like, does that mean that you want to help allow your code formatter to support something like, hey, right here, don't format my code. Like, I want to opt out of it. I don't really want that. I'd rather just be like, yeah, I'm just going to find another way to do that. And maybe it's not going to be as good as, as aligning them would have been, but I can live with that. And it's worth it for the, you know, just the not having to think about that anymore aspect. Yeah, but uh, on the other hand, I think a small... I don't want to say all, but most programming languages, they have constructs for expressing things that would not work well within the formatter as well. So for example, I think in JavaScript, they're called template strings or something like that. Or they would have a way for to say, hey, in this part, like this is a string, the, for the formatter cannot touch it. So for example, there is one project in Elixir, I'm not going to remember the name, which is exactly, it's like a template string for tables. And the whole purpose is like, well, I want to have like this very tabular data kind of thing that can be very useful for tests. Like imagine sure. that you want to, right? So, and then, you know, there is no table syntax thing. So in a way, that's kind of like going with an, a stretching our analogies like really far, like <laughs> the template strings, like the dynamic, like it's the way I can say, look, here it's kind of, my rules, and that's a language affordance that I get. So I think there are ways to escape, but I, in general, I agree with you. It's like the Elixir formatter doesn't have, like, you should, if you want something like that, to use our equivalent of template strings. You cannot tell the formatter, like, ignore this part of the code. Yeah. You don't have that. And so, so one of the things that I get to with this is, like, you know, in that talk, I was 
trying to predict the, t- the title of the talk is why static typing came back. And I kind of looked at some of the like historical reasons that dynamic typing got big in the first place. And then why now there's been kind of a resurgence in the popularity of static typing. And one of my conclusions was that I don't predict that people are going to be making a lot of new languages like Greenfield from scratch, you know, uh, no, no relationship to any existing language, or like no former relationship, like Go, for example. I don't predict that people are going to be making languages like that and choosing gradual typing from the get-go, rather that the use cases for gradual typing are going to be essentially like, like what you're doing with Elixir, which is like you've got an existing popular dynamically typed language and you want to add static typing to it after the fact. And this is kind of the reason why, is that it seems like if you're designing from the get-go, it, it gives you more flexibility as a language designer to make certain choices about the type system that seem to me to outweigh the benefit of whatever that delta is between if we go fully statically typed versus if we choose to go a mix of static and dynamic. It seems like that that delta gets pretty small if everybody's bought into static typing already. That's what it seems like to me. Yeah, I, I'm not sure if there would be a reason for somebody to start with a gradually typed language. Because for me, going from, from my perspective, it's a way of expressive languages to get more correct. But if you are starting from the other angle, you there isn't such a concern. I think maybe there is a debate, and I'm not capable of having that debate, I think I I think for example C sharp it has like a dynamic type so there are in some languages there are places where you can kind of say like I don't know a disease or to pass something that you have to tag and handle around or you do your own tagging tagging mechanism right you end up implementing your own tag mechanism and implementing your uh, dynamic bit so for example I'm I'm working a lot with with Arrow which is like the data format protocol and what you have is that you end up doing, you end up re-implementing like a really good part of the tagging and the dynamic because what you have is that you have this data array and this data array can be representing, so what you get are blobs and it can represent a bunch of different things. So you end up passing like what is the type of that thing on the side. So like you are implementing the dynamic parts inside your static type language because that particular domain is dynamic. So I think there are, you know, I think the point I'm trying to get at is that even though it's static, we're not saying it's gradual, but even in within a static language, you have your own mechanisms of having the dynamic parts and implementing your dynamic things. And maybe it's a question of debate for the type system, how much affordances they want to give to that. The difference with a dynamic language is that that affordance is usually baked in into the runtime. So you don't have to push to the developers. The runtime is going to be checking the tags. So yeah, so that's one of the things that comes to my mind. But other than that, I agree with you that I'm not sure if I would think about somebody starting with a gradually typed language by default. I can still see like new dynamic programming languages being born and then eventually doing totally. the same path. But because again, like they make the choice of like which one one comes first and expressiveness is going to come first. And then you build on top of that. I think an interesting uh thing to consider there is like I don't know if that's 
always going to be true. So an example that comes to mind is, so we're talking in Rock Zulip about data frames and like uh, libraries for data frames, like Python's got, I, th I think Pandas is the popular one in Python. This is like work that I have never done. So I'm not data scientist <laughs> or anything close to it. But from what I've heard, it's, it's the case that if you're doing data science work, it's really common to basically live in a notebook. Maintainability is not really a thing that you're concerned with because you're literally writing throwaway code nonstop. You're like, I'm going to write a little bit of code that's going to try to answer this question about the data. And then after I get my answer, I'm going to be like, oh, now I have another follow-up question. I'm going to write some more code that answers a different question. And at the end of the day, once you've got all your answers, you're not necessarily going to go back and revisit that code, which means that if I were over the course of my program building up an increasingly large program that I was expecting to maintain, that would potentially get in my way and be annoying. Where I'm like, I don't care. Don't tell me about type mismatches with what I did previously. I don't care about what I did previously. I want, I want it to be gone. But I still want the answers to be around so that I can, you know, sort of like mix and match and, and do things like that. And in an environment like that, I wonder about if you don't have the historical sort of unusual period where the web is in the process of getting big, and there's these different trade-offs that I got into in the talk. But let's say that somebody makes a new language that's specifically designed for sort of play and exploration and answering questions on the fly and not ever to be something that's like deployed anywhere, for example. In that world, does a language like that ever reach a point where there is demand for static typing? I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe not ever. So I think that yes, because even because if you're going to have a data frames library, if you're uh -huh. going to have a notebook implementation, those are already like known simple systems. And so in order for me to implement the notebook itself, or in order for me to implement the data frames library, those complex systems, I may want types uh, or I may want, well, let's not say static typing, but I may want like more correctness than no correctness at all. Oh, I see. So like, Using the da the data frames library, using the notebook might be simple, but creating it is not, and therefore, yeah, I guess you could create a different language. Yeah, unless unless you have SQL, right? Which is like sure, like a database is super complex, and if we take out the SQL extensions that allow you basically to program whatever you want, right? It's a smaller language. And then you can put like very specific affordances, even like the database knows about the types and everything. You're usually not thinking a lot about types when you're writing a SQL query. And then it makes sense, like going really into like, if, even if you get like into the Python needs, you know, like, well, um, it started with pandas, but now there are a lot of alternatives that try to be more performatic. And then there's a huge amount of work happening behind the scenes to make that possible. And then those systems, they start to grow. And even going back to notebooks, like one of the biggest complaints about Jupyter notebooks is that they are hard to reproduce because you can evaluate things in any order. So I think like if you do something like that and people start using it, it's going to be used uh, outside of its original intentions. Yeah, it's going to be used in production. And then I think eventually you're going, you're going to ask the question of like, how can I make this more correct? Because I, we are running into common issues all the time. And I think that kind of struggle, I think, between the, the expressiveness and correctness will always be there. So I was talking to Alexis King. Uh, we had an event here in Krakow, uh, Lambda Days, and I had really great conversations with her. And then I was complaining about one of the things 
So I, I was working in this in, in this Rust project uh, because we are doing data frames for Elixir, so I'm using this Rust nice. library. And then the error specification, it says that a field can be null. Uh, it can be new, no, whatever you pronounce that. And But the Rust implementation, or they changed the specification, or the Rust implementation did not see that. So this thing is a string or no, and the Rust implementation did not say it could be no, so it said the type is a string. Uh-huh. And apparently, so we have this library that is really using the Rust ecosystem for like years at this point that does not follow the specification, okay? Mm-hmm. It's like uh, the field can be no, and apparently nobody complained. It was never an issue for anybody. But now I'm using this library that is giving me data where the field is no. I ran into this issue, and then I'm like, okay, what do I do to solve this problem? Because I can go to the library and say, hey, you forgot to consider that this thing can be no. So what you should do is that you should change your string type to an optional type and basically pretty much break every application out there. Yes, and force everybody to rewrite it and to fix it. And then, you know, uh, like, I mean, I don't, I don't want to, it feels bad even proposing it. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like, you know, hey, do you want to break all users of your library with this pull request that I'm sending to you? <laughs> and then like, or the other option is like, oh, if it's no, we are going to normalize it to an empty string, which is not following the specification, but it may be the more pragmatic approach. So I was ranting about this. And Alexis said, I was like, I was saying like, this is an issue with like static typing. And she said, well, it's not really an issue with static typing. And then we mentioned like Rich Hicks talk about uh, maybe not, where he talks exactly about sometimes it's counterintuitive because type systems, static typing actually make the system like this one harder to evolve because, you know, I cannot just add a no after the fact without breaking everybody and without breaking all the code. And then she said, it's not really an issue with static typing. It's an issue with nominal types. And structural types, they provide a solution to this problem. And one of the interesting things is that most of the languages that are are exploring structural typing right now, they are gradually typed languages. And she said that would be interesting to see more, you know, non-gradually typed languages explore structural typing and the benefits that come out of it. And I think in my mind, right, it goes back like, you know, if as gradual typing succeeds or not succeeds, as it learns its lessons, it may actually find new expressive powers that the static languages, they will be like, hey, we actually want that. That's like, that looks like to be a good idea. And they'll have to figure out how to incorporate that. And again, it's not about the static type languages getting gradual. It's more about, hey, like people are figuring out new ways or important expressiveness all the time. And how do we incorporate that? So I think like this, this balance will still keep on going for a good period of time. And uh, like this, how do you call like the the rope the rope thing where there's one side pulling and the other side's pulling? Tug of you know, war, yeah. Tug of war, yeah. <laughs> so I think it's going to be going for a while uh, still. Yeah, well, one way to look at it is it's a tug of war. But I think another way to look at it is that it's sort of like healthy competition in the sense that like... Yeah. If you can write things and you're like, oh, this is a nicer experience, then hopefully it can inspire the other side to say, hang on, how can we get some of that? Yeah, because I mean, it, to the extent that if you are in a place where you're like, I feel like I have to pick or want to pick one or the other, at least you can learn from the other side. That was one of the things that kind of that talk also built up to was like 
one of the things that I always missed from dynamic typing was the ability to always run my tests. Like if I'm writing my test, there's no such thing as you can't run your tests yet because there's this, this hurdle you have to jump over first, which is you have to fix all your type mismatches, especially because sometimes I'm like, look, I know that these types are broken, but in this one small section, they're all correct within this one module. It's just that all the other things are broken and I want to test it to see if my approach actually works or if there's like a problem with my implementation before I go and commit to it and fix all the implications of all those things. And in typical static languages, you just can't do that. But there's no there's no innate reason that has to be true, which is why we're trying to fix that in Rock. Going back to your example about the um, sometimes returning null, was that something that it was returning null or string sometimes or is it that it was accepting null or strings. I thought it was returning, right? It, it was, it, it's a struct. So a field of the struct had the type of string, but according to the specification, it could be string or null. Now, is this, is, a, is this a struct that gets returned or only ever accepted as an argument or both? Both. You, you just, okay. it, yeah, you just pass it around anywhere. Because those are, I think, two importantly different scenarios. So, yeah, because if it's just accepting it, then you totally could, as a backwards compatible change, if you had, for example, union types like TypeScript has, you could say, oh, I just accept string or null now. And that's, a, as Rich Hickey would say, a relaxation of, you know, you're just like, I accept more now. But I, I think, and I'm surprised Alexis didn't go, go like, look at it from this angle um, based on a blog post she wrote. But the way that I would look at that is, the return type thing, um, if you're saying like, oh, it turns out this can be null sometimes, but it says it's always typed as a string, I would personally look at that as like, well, we just have bugs waiting. Like there's, you know, we have code that is written that calls this function that assumes the return type is always a string and it just does not handle the possibility that it's null. And so it's like, yes, it's a breaking API change to call it null, but that's better than a breaking runtime error. <laughs> <laughs> yes and no, right? Because the other logical way of, uh, I agree, I agree with that. Like it's a breaking change waiting to happen. But you know that by definition, all the code written so far using that library, none of them have no in it. So uh, it's yeah, like, or, or, or they're like, okay with the crashes <laughs> or something. Right. So, so it's, it, right. So it's like, um, it's like, um, you know, if there is a bug, but there is no cold path that can hit that bug. Is there a bug, right? Yeah. I think that's the thing. And I don't think our conclusion would be, uh, I don't think short typing would allow you to say like, hey, I want to ignore this, but it's exactly. going to give you more flexibility into not breaking everybody. And you could think about this as a way of like, you would get the warnings like, hey, you're not handling this case, right? But you could think that a, you know, like going back to our example about like tests, right? It could be cool if I just like, okay, I know I have all those warnings. I'm like, hey, compiler, I know I'm not handling this case. Make something that is going to crash for me. And I run my tests and I get feedback. It's a way more gradual, I guess, uh, or maybe more granular, granular way of like evolving the code base and dealing with this rather than say like, Everybody fix this right now, immediately. And you know, yeah, we break everybody. We fork the ecosystem. We fork the users of the of the library. I think like if we had those affordances, like people smarter than me, they would be able to figure out ways of making sure that those things play really well. I think it's one of the things that also comes from gradual typing, which is like when you get an error, try to pinpoint to the source of that error, right? So I think it gives you more leeway to explore different solutions 
and evolving the software in a more elegant manner. Yeah, I, I think I think dynamic versus static, you can support that. But I, I don't, sorry, I think if you were to type that as dynamic, I think you'd be fine. Yeah. Uh, but I don't, I'm not convinced that there is a solution that where you've added static types uh, to that problem. And whether it's structural, nominal, or uh, or union or otherwise, I don't think fundamentally you can have a sound type system that allows that that prevents the breaking change where you're saying um we have typed this thing accurately and it didn't break anyone's like nobody's builds got broken i claim that you have to have one or the other either you have to say we're going to type it either incorrectly or dynamically or whatever and and say we're not going to try to statically type this or else people's have builds have to break or else your type system's not sound and the reason i'd say this is because Really, what's the, the way that I would think about something like that, if I take a step back away from like the different implementation details of your type system, if this thing says, I am returning to you a string, to me, the benefit of that is that I know that I do not need to write any conditionals to handle the possibility that it's null. And if I should be handling those, because if I, if I fail to handle the possibility that it's null, and it turns out that it is null, and my program crashes... That was an example of unsoundness, where the type system did not catch a runtime crash. No matter how you type it, gradually, structurally, sorry, structurally, nominally, union, whatever, yeah, you have that problem. And one of the ways that I know this is that in Rock, we actually do have structural types for that case. Like the result type in uh, in Rust, for example, is a good example of this, where that's how they say, like, hey, this thing is either th- this thing or that thing, or maybe they have a type called option, uh, which is also nominally typed in Rust. Uh, so uh, in Rust. Results and option are both nominally typed, whereas in Rock they're structurally typed. But it's exactly the same thing. If you made that change, it would break everybody's builds, and and they would have to yeah. deal with it because they would have to introduce a conditional at every single one of those points to say, "I need to handle both of these possibilities." And TypeScript, which has union types, which is the thing that Rich Hickey was talking about, and maybe not, it's also the same thing. Where if you say, "I I used to return a string, and now I return string or null," like with a little pipe vertical pipe syntax, it's again gonna going to say and in typescript instead of pattern matching they would say you know write an if or something like that that says like if this is null you know um but at the end of the day i I don't think there's any way to get around it if you want to say we have static types and the type system is sound i think not necessarily getting around it but because if you think about it like well you have a struct so you know that a struct can looking at i'm not sure how practical this is i'm thinking about theoretically but you have a system and you know that deep inside the system, you cannot handle string or nil, right? Mm-hmm. So one of the ways that you can say deep inside the system is that you can look at that and say, I cannot handle this. So I'm going to add a runtime error and I have a crash in production. And I agree with you, right. like the, the, bo- the build is going to crash. But what we know is that for those systems, that's not the case. Like it never enters data that would violate this assumption. So could I push this constraint all the way up to where the data is created and make sure that that doesn't happen, right? You see, because the truth is that, you know, it's like there is a bug. There is no way for you to trigger the bug in those systems because there is no way that system has never seen its entire life has seen that data that you're you're doing again. So I I think that's one of the ways that that's how I'm thinking like you have, when I say more leeway, is that maybe you have control of saying, Look, I'm going to guarantee, I understand there is a fault now. What I'm going to do is that I'm going to push this 
all the way up the system to guarantee that you cannot create invalid data in the first place. And now I don't break, I don't know how feasible it is to implement. Yeah. Well, so that's basically um, like change the spec, right? It's, it's basically like, hey, we're, we're going to change the spec to accommodate the types rather than the other way around, right? Saying like, hey, you're just, you're not allowed to return anything but a string here. Stop. So if you were thinking about returning a null, don't do that because <laughs> it's not allowed anymore. Yeah, I, I moved the restriction around because for that system, that's fine. And then it's still yeah. going to be good, still going to be, to be sound. And then if somebody is using that, so we have this library, right? Let's call A. And then that library changed to be string or new. And then library B, it's like, oh, I can only handle a string. Right. So now if I use library C that's trying to feed string or new to that, right? Now I cannot do that, even for the base library can use. So that's right. I, that's the way I think about it. Like, can we just move things around? And again, necessarily, like ideally, I would want to fix that. I, it's not like I'm saying, hey, let's just like ship some specs of the thing. Like ideally we want to fix that, but it, it the problem space like looks more interesting. And there are other ways that we can do that, not for this case, but um, if you have a more expressive, this example is just simplistic, but if you have a more expressive uh, type system, so for example, um, if you have intersections, for example, so you, you talk about TypeScript, if I say that something, so imagine that I have a function that says, oh, when argument is an integer, it returns another integer. But there are ways that you can say, so imagine that you have a function. Okay, I'm going to give an example, and I think it's going to, to kind of like uh, encapsulate that. So imagine that you have a function that receives an integer and returns an integer. If it receives a Boolean, it returns a Boolean. Sure. One of the types that you can give to it is if it receives an integer or Boolean, it returns an integer or Boolean. Right. right. So it's like they're, they're decoupled. It's like I, I accept an integer or a Boolean and also I might return an integer or a Boolean, but there's yes. no, it's not expressing the, what you gave me is what you're going to get back. Yes. That we can solve with, um, with uh, type, type variables. Yeah. Type variables. So we can do the opposite, which is not going to be solvable with type variables. Imagine like a weird function where you give an integer and you return a Boolean. And if I right. give a Boolean, return an integer. Right. Sure. <laughs> and then I could give it the same type signature, which kind of reveals the problem with the type signature, which is that it's not precise enough to, to do what the function is doing. So if we start with this function, imagine that we start with it. Oh, it receives an integer and it returns a Boolean. The function starts like that. And then a bunch of people start using this function. But now you want to add the capability of it receiving a Boolean and returning an integer. If you give that type of definition, integer or Boolean returns integer or Boolean, you basically broke all users of your code, right? right? Because you're not going to say I can return those two other things. But if you have more expressive types, so if you can use intersections, you can say, well, this function is a function that it receives an integer and returns a Boolean and receives a Boolean and returns an integer. Now you are encoding more information about the function behavior in that. And that would be a way of being able to evolve that function without breaking everything as well, right? So um, anyway, like the point is that, you know, like uh, one of the things that I like to say a lot is that we are all boiling frogs. You know, it's like we, because there's a story like, you know, if you are a frog and then if you boil it, if we increase the temperature little by little, like it, it doesn't, it doesn't jump out right? It stays there. And we are all boiling frogs. Right. Like we all have like those pains that we've kind of like, uh, 
those pains that we we take for granted, right? It's like, oh, it's it's like this, right? Like, so this pain that I had in Rust, it's like, oh yeah, the choice is to not follow the spec or break everybody. And then we are like, well, it's fine. Like, you know, but for me that I'm not doing a lot of static programming, uh, static typing programming, I, I'm not happy with that. Like as a frog, I want to jump out. Like you didn't, <laughs> you didn't boil me enough, right? On the other hand, I know that I know that there's the places where I'm being boiled and they are like all the idiosyncrasies that I got used to or lack or lack of feedback. And I think that's exactly I think we are very far from having all the answers there. And I think the more we are like we are jumping to other pots and getting boiled, I think we're going to complain more and find more expressive power. So those frustrations that we deal with, like, oh, my only choice is to break everything, right? Or like, oh, Elixir, like there's this bug where our type system would obviously have caught. And then, yeah. you know, if you talk, say that to the Elixir community, our boiling frogs will say, write a test, right? Or like, <laughs> do this, right? Like test manually. Like, we, so I think I like to poke at that a lot and, and just saying like, that's the way it is, but I'm not necessarily happy with that. And I, I want to change and explore different things. I think that's good. So imagine, so as we're saying, like you have an existing programming language with an expressive power and you want to model that with types and you want to make sure that you can model as many things as possible. But uh, you cannot model everything. That's one thing. And the other thing is that you can have like dynamic code calling static code and static code calling uh, dynamic code and so on. So for example, imagine that you have a function. Imagine that you have a function that is the identity function, okay? And uh, But you add a type for that function, for that function to be Boolean to Boolean. But an implementation is really, I receive X, I return X. I don't check it's a Boolean in any way. Yeah. Right? So um, if I call that function from the dynamic road, if I call that, right, uh, I can give it an integer and it's going to give the integer back. Right. And now I have a type system. Now I have something that's like, hey, uh, you you were expecting a Boolean, but at runtime, this thing is an integer. So how are we going to deal with that? And there are a couple of solutions. So one solution, it's like, the let's say the most boiling frog one is going to be like, well, that can happen. And <laughs> I think that's what TypeScript does. Like it's going to be on sound. You you say it's a Boolean, but you're actually going to be an integer in practice. Yeah. And that's something that you can do. So what the type system is saying is not what you have at runtime. The other ones that you can say, oh, I cannot guarantee. And because I cannot guarantee it, uh, I'm going to say it's dynamic. So even for it's Boolean to Boolean, when I call it from dynamic, I, I'm going to say it's going to give a dynamic back. And that's going to be sound, but it means that you are inserting way more dynamics in your program. And uh, and then the, the checks, they are less useful. Or the other thing that you can do, you can introduce runtime checks. So you're like, hey, this is the boundary between uh, dynamic and static. So I'm actually going to check that the thing that I'm passing is a Boolean, the thing that I'm returning is a Boolean, and that slows the program down. So one of the cool things that we have done, and I believe this is new, it's like a, it has a, it's a new approach, it hasn't been done before, uh, which is if you get every dynamic programming language, the runtime, it always checks the types. Right, like especially yeah. when it's more strict. But so, like in Elixir, if you call like plus, it, you can only give a number to it. So the runtime is effectively checking that the thing is a number. Right, you don't need to introduce additional runtime checks. 
So what we did is that there is a new theory that we call strong arrows, and this is more the on the implementation. Like an editor developer wouldn't have to worry about it. That's in the internals, which is like how can we, which is none of the trade-offs that we did we did before, which is a way for us to leverage the runtime checks that is already done by the runtime in order to know if we need to fall back to dynamic or not, but without introducing the runtime checks. We use the information that is there. So the goal is that we have a sound gradual, I don't, I'm not sure if I could expre- explain that well, but the goal is to have a sound gradual type system that is not returning dynamics willy-nilly, like, hey, it's dynamic. Mm-hmm. And because, you know, like, that's anybody could implement a type system today to just say that everything receives dynamic and everything <laughs> sure. returns dynamic, right? So it's not just returning dynamic everywhere and it's not introducing the runtime checks. So that's so that's a, a new approach that came uh, from this work. And if you ask how it works, I actually don't know. Like the theory, <laughs> it's, uh, it's going to be, there's a brief formalization on the paper, but that's a new thing. And I guess something else that we can say about gradual typing is that comparing to the history of typing, it's a relatively new discipline. And I think there's still going to be some some leaps there's still going to be like some how do you say when you when you go back right like yeah it's like going to be like yeah. yeah it's going to be like uh two steps back one step forward <laughs> two steps yeah. forward one step back right but uh i feel it's i it's i think it's uh theoretically speaking is probably the biggest contribution from the paper in introducing this new approach for gradually typed languages uh, which is very exciting so it sounds like uh, let me let me take a guess at how this works but the basic idea would be so you're going through and you know checking your types and solving your types and if you never encounter dynamic in the entire program and they're like well obviously we don't need to generate any runtime checks if we do encounter a dynamic then the idea would be only the sort of types that interacted with that or or like that come after that maybe i'm kind of hand waving a lot here I will try to explain, and this may be very inaccurate, but I'll try to explain. So the way it works is that it works with local inference. It doesn't matter who is the caller. So the way it works is that when you define a function and you define its type signature, we are going to detect if that arrow, if that definition is a strong arrow. And Uh it's going to be a strong arrow if the types that we defined, they are... uh, Oh, I remember exactly how it works. Perfect. If the types that you define, um, they they are checked within the program. Okay, so the types that you define, they are checked within the program and, and they are guaranteed. And how do you do that? You do that by, because it's satiratic type, one of the operations that we have, it's not. So what we do is that we do the negation of the domain and we see if the negation of the domain leads to a crash. Or it leads huh. to a crash or to the same return value because that's going to handle constant. So imagine a function that receives uh, an integer and always return the atom true. Oh, sorry, the, the Boolean true, right? In that case, even if you give it something that is dynamic, the return type's crack. So if you get the domain, you negate it and you negate it and it either crashes or return the same types, then that's a strong arrow which means that if you call it with a dynamic type, you're going to guarantee the return type of that function. And therefore, you don't have to introduce runtime checks. Um, cool. that's, how, that's the theory, the theory behind 
strong arrows. Um, and you do totally with local inference, which is good, right? Because it doesn't mean you have to consider how the call site is going to... That's the thing that I got stuck last time. I'm not sure if I'm using local inference correctly. But yeah, it, it works be- within the function. It doesn't matter who is the caller. Yeah. So one follow-up question I'd have about that is, so that lets you eliminate the checks, but can you also change the runtime representation? Because one thing that's true is like, let's say you have a function which has, uh, like going back to your like Boolean or, actually Booleans are kind of weird because they happen to be, you know, represented as numbers. But let's say you have like a function that could either take a string or an integer. Normally, you would have to, like in a dynamically typed system, you would have to say, well, I got this integer, but also I have some extra amount of memory that's that's sort of tagging it as such. Like somehow you need to in memory represent not only the data for the integer, but also the fact that it's an integer so that you can run a check against it at runtime. But if you know that you're not generating the checks, then you could do things essentially like unbox integers. You could say like our integer types are. So so are you doing that too? Yeah, so uh, yes and no. Uh, So I think that's one of the things that uh, I think in, in, in your talk, you say like, is gradual typing the best of both roads? And to me, actually, in theory, I would say that the answer is yes, in theory, right? Because controversial, <laughs> okay? No, no, it, it, it's yes, because all the gradual typing a gradual type system does is that it introduces dynamic chart type system, and if you don't use dynamic, you can compile it as a statically typed language. You could, right? And in theory, if you only want to use dynamic. And then you would have to tag everything at runtime, right? And then it's the same as a dynamic language. So in theory, it is the best of both roads. And and maybe you could say like it would also, but the problem is the middle, right? Like what happens in the middle that where you can say, well, maybe I have the the worst of both roads. It depends on how the interaction between them. But in theory, you would be able to 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 express both. And I think one of the things that I'm interested, have you seen the the Mojo programming language announcement? Yes. Right? One of the things, so there's not a lot of detail, but one of the things that I found very interesting is that it's a statically typed language. And what they are going to have, I'm guessing, what they're going to have is that they are going to have a type, which is called object. And that's the Python object type, which is really dynamic. Yeah. Right. So in a way for me, it's like it's like doing both. You, you're using the static type system and within that static type system, you are creating a type that is having those dynamic properties. Yeah. So in theory, it is possible to do that. So if I have a gradually typed language and I know like the subset of the code, like I look at the tree, right? And I have like this really large tree and I say, look, within here everything is static. I'm going to check the all the tags at the top, right? And then everything down here is going to be good and we don't have to worry about it. So uh, that's totally a possibility. And it's kind of, and I think would have more advanced advancements on this area if the main gradually typed language that we have today, if it was not transpiling to JavaScript. Because... <laughs> Right, because TypeScript, you know, if if there was something, if it was a bytecode or something lower level, it could compile to. We probably already start seeing more of this, but you know, there is no incentive in TypeScript to do that, so we are not seeing a lot of new things happening in this area. But what is really interesting, so to answer now your question directly, uh, do we leverage that? So yes and no. So Elixir, it still targets very high 
in the Erlang like compiler representation. So we are going for the same code path as Erlang and we have no control over native compilation. Right. But the Erlang compiler already does those optimizations within modules. So in Erlang compiler, if you say, and if you look at the, they started doing this like two or three years ago. So if you look, if you go to Erlang.org to their blog and see what they have been working on, um, they they talk about this. So if you know, if you have like a, a recursive function or you have a function that goes into a recursive loop, if you check the tag at the front and the functions, the other functions, they are like, for example, private, they figure all this stuff out at compilation time and then they check the tag at the front and everything else is untagged. So they are using the information from patterns and guards to already do this, this kind of things within a module, which is something that, you know, like I, I guess a JIT sometimes making this kind of optimizations as well. But in here, it is happening at compilation time without a type system. But honestly, like if we succeed in this work of like typing Elixir, because the semantics in Elixir and Erlang, they are pretty much the same. Uh, I think from the type system perspective, there is no expressive power, additional expressive power required for Elixir. If this works out and, and there is interest in the Erlang community, I wouldn't be surprised if we are like eventually in the future exploring that, like bringing the type system right into Erlang and using the type system information to do even more like type-driven optimization, especially if they can happen across modules. I think it's definitely a possibility for the future, but it's more like long-term future. But still, like, we yeah. are going to be alive future. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I hadn't heard about anybody, I, mean, I guess if you're the first, then that would explain why I hadn't heard about anybody um, like trying to do those optimizations. So, yeah, I mean, part of my claim in the talk was that one of the reasons that I don't see gradual typing as the best of both worlds is that you have to pay the runtime cost in order to have the dynamic features. But it's an interesting point of what if you only had to pay the runtime cost if you use dynamic features and if you chose not to, then uh, you wouldn't pay it. That's a lot more interesting. I do think there's a little bit more to it than that. I mean, I don't think it's necessarily that cut and dry because like you said, what about the middle ground where you're using it sometimes, then either you have to always tag them or else you have to do conversions back and forth like on the fly, which could be a lot more expensive than, uh, than if you weren't doing that, <laughs> certainly. Um, but I also think that it's, it's worth noting that if you want to be, have a static type system that is sound and you want to have dynamic in the mix, that certainly changes some design constraints that you have for the type checker. And it might make it harder to do things like, for example, like full type inference or offering things like, um, like a certain compilation speeds, for example, like it definitely, it would be nice if we could say, there's no downside to doing this in terms of like what it, how it restricts your implementation, but I think the restrictions that it does put on the implementation are pretty significant. Yeah, no, and and there's the other downside, which is that you are implementing like let's say two runtimes. It's not really two runtimes, right? But you have to do like the tagged version and the and the untagged version right. of everything. But for many of the dynamic languages, this ship has sailed anyway. Even they sure. even. Even static languages, if they have a JIT, you have already two implementations of everything. But I also think like one of the questions that is coming, like because I said, you know, like if Mojo they succeed in their goals in being a statically typed language that supports Python, uh, they have by definition to be like there is some dynamism in there. But if they don't introduce gradual types, if they model that through objects, is it a gradually typed language? 
or not, right? Um, yeah, uh, which is I think is a reasonable question. Like another thing, you know, going back to our earlier discussion of the breaking API change, if you have something that's like string and then you want to change it to string or null, you could also look at a language like Java where it's like, that's just part of the meaning of string is that it can be null. <laughs> so that's like what that type means. So by and, the same and, token. And how much did uh, that error cost again? I think the estimate was around $1. <laughs> uh, that's that's why it's called the one dollar mistake. Um, but but anyway, uh, but but I think about that. Like, yeah, I mean, technically, you could just define and like Java also has a type called object, which can represent basically anything. I mean, you could say like, is it still gradually typed? If we're saying it's statically, fully statically typed, we just have these extremely extremely broad types. It's an interesting uh, philosophical question, maybe. Yeah, and the other thing I think. I don't know how we managed to talk for like uh, one hour and twenty, and just now we mentioned inference, and for me, inference it goes back to that expressiveness, uh, incorrectness, scale. Like if you want to have inference, uh, which some people can see, like you know, is in a, in a way a more expressive in the in the sense that we're saying about Ruby. Right, not in the in the yeah. Elm sense, right? Like, oh, I don't have to write the types. Then it comes trade-offs with that, right? And then maybe like you know the type of code that you can express uh, is going sure. to be reduced, and the correctness around that code. So one of the things that I just well I maybe did mention inference in the beginning is going back to heterotic types because they are very expressive. Inference is very expensive and very expensive in the sense that you know if you take like a a filter operation, you know, it's going to take, if you're going to refer the, the types for it, it's going to take for sure more than a couple hundred milliseconds with the current yeah. thing today, which means that you're not going to have that as part of your type system. Maybe you can, the developer can ask, hey, infer the type for me. And then, um, and then it can tell you a can, type that you can write down. Yeah. And then, yeah. yes, exactly. Yeah. But speaking about filter, I know you're going way over time this. The way that we type filter with set theoretic types is very, very cool. I don't know if oh, you yeah? added this to the paper. Uh, because, because, for example, if you get a nominal type system, so for example, imagine that, I'm going to give a simple example, but imagine that you have a filter that receives a Boolean, and you know that filter removes all the falses. You know that at the end, it's just going to have trues in it, right? So if you do a filter operation on a list, at the end, it still comes back as a list of booleans, right? And then everywhere else, I still need to check if it's true or false or something like that, right? Yeah. And with satiratic types, you, you don't have to do that. So the way that we, we would uh, define a type specification for our filter function is that we would say you receive a list of A's or B's, type variables, A's or B's. And then you have a function that when it receives A, it returns true. When it receives B, it returns false. And then by definition, the result is a list of A's. So you can actually express, like in the Boolean case or any other case, you can express like those types, they are effectively being filtered out. And I found that example, like I really like uh, geeked on it. I was like, <laughs> this is like, like mind blowing. It's like, it's the point. Like, but I, then I asked the question, is like, is that mind blowing and confusing? It's like, is it so cool that, but is it also hard and can be like a, a hindrance like to adoption of the type system? Or does this like, you know, make make like a good amount of logical sense and 
we can build the intuition for people to think about those things. And that's the other exci- exciting thing about set theoretic types, which is that all the operations, they map to set properties, right? So, so some examples is like, if you want to do subtyping, like subtyping is set containment, right? Like if you have the numbers one, two, and three as types, are they subtype of integer? You ask if they con- if they belong to the set of integers. Right. And then when you do like bounded polymorphism, a set type system actually doesn't, doesn't have a specific construct for bounded polymorphism. If you want to say that, uh, so for example, say, look, this type variable can only be integers or strings. What you do is that you say a intersection of integers or strings, because the intersection is a way of putting an upper bound on something. If you say that something, if a variable is an intersection with a concrete value, you're saying, you know, if there's anything outside of this concrete value, it's going to be discarded. Right. And everything that is within that con- concrete value, it stays lower bound is uh, a union. So like all everything comes back to satiratic operations. One of the things, Haskell, they have like type classes and Elixir has something like type classes, which we call protocols, right? So in Haskell, you have a special syntax to say, hey, this argument is going to be a ORD or this argument is going to be something that I can encode to JSON. There's like special syntax. There's special syntax if you want to say this argument needs to implement like those two type classes. And for satiratic types, that would be an intersection. If I say, look, I want everything that implements this protocol and everything that implements this protocol, I just get the intersection between those things. Anyway, uh, for me, that's one of the things that is exciting. It feels like the primitives seem to be like really powerful. We do lose inference, but it seems to be really powerful to you express all those things without like making layers and layers of abstractions and new theory on top. Yeah, that's really interesting. Another consideration there, because I thought about this like in very early days of rock was I was kind of like exploring this direction of like, do we want to, I was thinking about it not in terms of like full set theoretic types, but just in terms of like union types, because that was like a thing TypeScript had sort of, you know, popularized. Um, And so the classic example of this is like, let's say I have a list and I want this list to every element in the list is either a string or a Boolean. And like an Elm and Haskell, this is not something you can say. You can, you have to put a wrapper around it. Like, I mean, this is fundamentally what Rich Hickey was talking about and maybe not, is that you you can't say it's a string or a list. You can put a wrapper around it that has like another type that says like like either in Haskell, for example, says it's either a string or a list. But that's has different properties in terms of backwards compatibility and, and so forth. It's not the same thing. One thing that's interesting that I thought about that was one of the things that convinced me not to go down that direction was, let's say I have a list and I make a mistake. I put, I have a bunch of strings and then I accidentally put a Boolean in there. It's like a weird mistake to make, but whatever. <laughs> you can imagine like, you know, you put something that's that's not the type you intended to put in there. If you have the type system that Rock and Elm and Haskell have, you get an error right away when you put that in there because it says, yeah, this is not the same type as the other things in this list. You're not allowed to do that. They, they all have to have exactly the same type or they all have to have compatible types at least. And these two types are concrete types that are not compatible. Whereas in TypeScript, again, talking about type inference, you put those in there and it's like, sure, that's fine. String or yeah. bool. But if the rest of your code is written assuming that it's all strings, at some point you're going to get an error, like a compile time error, but it's going to be sort of distant from where it happened, where it'll say like, hey, in this in this code, you're treating this like a string, but it's actually a string or a bool. And you look at that and you're like, why? I don't, I think it's a list of strings. Why would it be a string or a bool here? And you have to trace back and figure out where the original error happened. And 
I haven't written a lot of TypeScript, but I have written a little bit where I have definitely seen this come up in not exactly in that way, like with the list example, the list is just easier to explain. But I've gotten errors where it's like, hey, this type is you, you're treating it like it's a blah, but it's actually a blah or something else. And I'm like, why the hell is it a something else? I don't think it should be. And then I have to trace back and figure out where it is. So my point is that even performance aside, there is an element of how helpful can the compiler be in terms of error messages. And maybe it might be that a sufficiently smart compiler could say the reason it's this is because and just like maybe show you the whole trace or something or like like eagerly inform you about like where this came from and maybe you could answer the question very quickly but at least the ex early experiences that i had with that made me convinced also that it's like well there's an ergonomics downside here too <laughs> like as a user of the language but isn't that true for everything in the sense that imagine that instead of putting something wrong in a list you make a typo and you call the wrong function. And that's going to return now something different to you. And then you're going to pass it down. And it's going to take a while for her to figure out that you are where the sure. typo happened, I mean, yeah, where yeah, you called the wrong thing. There's plenty of ways to make mistakes that, that show up as like distant from where you made the mistake. Okay. Um, this just seemed like a particularly common one that I would be annoyed by running into <laughs> with that frequency. Yeah, I think, yeah, but I think the thing of like uh, in recognizing that it can also ha happen in other cases, it's like, it's good to say like, you know, if, if that's an annoyance, we should all, you know, going back to the boiling frogs, should all stop like being boiling frogs and come up <laughs> with a general solution for this. You know what I mean? It's like, ideally, yeah. Yeah, right. It's like, yeah, you know, can. have a good tracing or figure out how we can propagate more type information through the type system. So the error messages, yeah, they, they don't look as confusing. Cool. Jose, thanks so much for the great conversation. This is, uh, this is really great. Yeah, thanks. Thanks again uh, for having me. Uh, and maybe, you know, in a year, we'll be back exactly to talk about error messages because if everything works out, that's now going to be my, my problem. And, <laughs> and we'll be like, Talking about ways where we can make compiler error messages better because people will be very upset that, you know, with those distance errors. So uh, I'm pretty sure we're going to have uh, future topics. Awesome. Looking forward to it. All right. All right. Have a good one. Thanks for having me. Bye. See ya. <laughs>